This is session number 28 of A Better Brand of Happiness, and today's session continues our study of Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, so let me invite you to turn there in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We started this paragraph last time, and I return to it this morning, and of course we'll begin with the reading of God's Word, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which says... Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Last time as we began our study of this passage, I gave you what I believe to be the big idea, a one-sentence summary of this paragraph of Scripture, and my big idea for this goes as follows, standing firm in the Lord, which is what verse 1 tells them to do. Standing firm in the Lord means, among other things, resolving problems with, un- with other believers. That's what Paul is getting to. Paul has, as we've, uh, as just to, is to do a quick review from last time, Standing firm in the Lord has been a sub-theme in the book of Philippians. And it means to kind of boil it down or to rephrase it, to, to remain steadfast in your faith, to keep trusting the Lord, to keep following Him, to keep persevering in the Christian life. And Paul began talking about standing firm in the Lord way back in chapter 1, verse 27, where he said, "...whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." Then whenever whenever I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That idea of standing firm and striving together is one Paul introduced in 127. He explained it all the way up to here, chapter 3, verse 27, or 3, verse 21, I mean. And then um, here in chapter 4, verse 1, he transitions then to applying that statement, all right? And so this verse is transitional. Chapter uh, 4, verse 1 is transitional. Paul is transitioning from describing what it means to stand firm in the Lord now to applying what it means to stand firm in the Lord in one specific way. And so now as we jump into the new content for this morning, we come to verse 2 where Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now Paul here applies the truth of standing firm in the Lord, to the problem that, he, that was going on with Euodia and Syntyche. And the problem, the appeal that Paul makes is for them to stop fighting. That's what he's getting at in verse 2 when he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. What does it mean to not be of the same mind? It means you have differences of opinion. What do differences of opinion create? They create clashes, personality problems between people. That was going on with these two people in the church at Philippi. And Paul is pleading with them to be unified. He's talking to them to stop fighting and to, start, uh, to find unity in their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has come to this concept of unity again and again and again in the book of Philippians, probably because he was coming to this place. He knew at some point he needed to address this problem. And so he, um, he uh, layers the book of Philippians with appeals to unity. 
with the principles that um, ought to be true of us as believers so that he can now apply them to this situation. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, Paul wrote, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Okay, Being like-minded, having the same love, one in spirit, one mind. This is to be unified, right? It's to, it's to stop fighting, to find unity in Christ. And all of that, of course, flows from the things that Paul says are true of us in Christ, the consolation we have from being in Christ, and so on in chapter 2, verse 1. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul wrote to the church, do everything without complaining and arguing. Okay, I don't think Paul pulled those two things out of the clear blue sky. I think this is what Euodia and Syntyche were doing. They were complaining and arguing. And Paul's saying, you don't do this as Christians if you really understand who Christ is and what he's done for us. In chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, Paul wrote about Timothy and said, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. What happens when everyone looks out for their own interests? There's disunity. And so Timothy showed the kind of like-mindedness with Paul that Paul now wants these two women to have. And in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul commanded the church to join together in following my example and to keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Again, it's a call to have a, a singular focus instead of having and doing your own thing. And so Paul has been layering the book with these calls to unity, to agree together in the Lord. And now Paul wants these two women to stop their arguments because arguments fragment unity. They fracture a unified group of people just like um, breaking glass fractures the glass and what was once one thing is now in a million pieces, as we say. So also, um, arguments are, are like a blow to a piece of glass that fragment it. And how does this work? Why, why do arguments fragment unity? Well, one, they tempt people to take sides, which creates division in the church. What if you're friends with both Euodia and Syntyche, and each of them are trying to get you on their side? That's going to cause a problem. Also, arguments create an uncomfortable atmosphere where even if you can stay out of it, if you can pretend that you're Switzerland and you're not going to take one side or another, you know, you're going to be neutral, it still tends to be around two people who are at each other's throats all the time, arguing. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in that situation. I don't want to be with people who are like that. Okay, and so that means um, the atmosphere is uncomfortable and people don't want to come around anymore. This is so important to Paul that he believes that standing firm in the Lord means resolving this problem, this argument, whatever it was, in a righteous way, in a way that pleases God. It means resolving problems, all problems, not just this one, but this is the specific one, resolving them in a, in a biblically to find unity in the Lord. And so after introducing his desire to see them stand firm in the Lord, verse 1, and buffering it with these phrases of love. Remember in verse 1, he says, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joint crown. Paul lubricates his command to stand firm in the Lord with these reassurances of his love and compassion and care for the church. Now he finally gets to the point. And again, I spent a lot of time on verse 1 last time because 
I think this is important. Anytime you talk to somebody about something that you think is wrong in their life or that's causing a problem, what is the risk? The risk is that person will cut off relationship with you. The risk is that that person will judge you and say, you know, your motives are wrong. You're sinning for bringing it up. You're being unkind. You're being uncharitable. You're being unchristian. You know, you shouldn't do this. You're meddling. And so Paul goes to great lengths to reassure the people of his love because he doesn't want them to, to misunderstand or to react improperly to what he's about to say. And now in verse 2, he uses a phrase, I plead with these two people. The word plead means to urge strongly, to appeal to, to urge, to exhort, to encourage. It's, it's not a rarely used word, but it's a rarely acted upon idea. Think about in your life how often you've actually pleaded with somebody for something. Probably hasn't been that many times because to plead with somebody means you've got to lower yourself and you've got to say, I'm desperate here. This is so important to me that I'm willing to look bad in front of you and other people to get what I need. That's the word Paul's using here. And he uses it twice. He uses it with each woman's um, name. Okay, So he says in verse uh, 2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. Greek works, at least in this instance, just like English does, where one verb can govern two direct objects, okay? I, he could have said, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche, and the grammar would have worked just fine. But instead, he uses the verb twice. I plead with this woman, and I plead with this woman. Why? To emphasize to all of us, and to them especially, how deeply critical Paul saw this. How this wasn't a polite request, this was an urgent situation in his mind. And so Paul repeated this verb before each woman's name in order to give stress to an already intense word. Pleading is, is an intense word already. And he pleads with them directly in verse 2. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. He names them by name. Now we don't know anything about these two people except they're mentioned here in Philippians 4. Euodia means success, and Syntyche means lucky, okay? So they, they had interesting names. And maybe these are nicknames that Paul made up for them to give them a little bit of, um, to, you know, to shield them a little bit, but probably not. This is probably their names, and we don't know a thing about these people other than they're named here. We know this too, though, that both of these words are feminine in the original Greek. So in Greek, um, every noun is either masculine or neuter or feminine. It has that gender to it. And um, it's one way you could signal uh, how you're talking to somebody without, necessar- without um, either specifying their name if you use, like, say, a feminine uh, pronoun, or it's one way of signaling whether the person is a man or a woman, all right? And so the fact that these two people have feminine names means they're women. It's a very clear conclusion from the grammar. Also, verse 3 says, help these women, so that helps too, right? That's one Greek word, though, that means them, but it's a feminine in form. And so this feminine agreement is emphasizing to us that these are women who are involved here. And Paul names them by name. Now, Paul refers to a lot of people by name in his letters. That part isn't unusual. He's already referred to Timothy by name three times in the letter, in 
Philippians 1.1, Philippians 2.19, and Philippians 2.22. He said Timothy's name right there in the letter. He's also referenced Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25, and he's going to use his name again in chapter 4, verse 18. In Paul's other letters, he refers to false teachers by name at certain points. And he tells the church by name to watch out for these people. He also lists people within his letters who he wants to be greeted by name. The last chapter in the book of Romans is just filled with one name after another that Paul is asking people to greet. So There are so many names that some people think Paul is naming every single person in the church at Rome. I don't know if that's true or not, but it could be because these were small house churches. And so Paul is not above naming names at all. He does it frequently throughout his letters. And yet, this type of naming of names is really unusual in Paul's letters. Paul can name names of his fellow workers. He can name names of people he wants to give greetings to. He can name names of, and he does name names, of people who are false teachers. But this is really the only time where Paul names a fellow believer by name in order to rebuke that person. He does it with two people, specifically. This is really the only place in his letters where this happens. The closest equivalent we have, the only thing that's even remotely like this, is in Colossians 4.17, where Paul wrote, Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. All right, commentators view that as a mild rebuke. You know, if I said somebody's name and said, make sure you do what you said you were going to do, you, you guys would all know that I'm concerned that person's going to flake and they're not going to do what they said. And so I'm kind of mildly and um, vaguely warning them to not flake out on me, okay? You would, you would read that um, immediately into my words, even though I didn't say exactly that. That seems to be what Paul is saying to Archippus in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. But that's it. That's the closest we come in any of Paul's letters to him specifying somebody by name in order to rebuke that person. Except for here, in Philippians 4.2. And here in Philippians 4.2, Paul names these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, by name. And he says, I'm pleading with you, ladies. Now, what was he pleading with them about? Well, the content is in, at the end of verse 2 where he says, to be of the same mind in the Lord. To be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul's intention in these words is to get them to be of the same mind. Literally, the language of verse 2 is to think the same thing. He's saying, I plead with you two women to think the same way, to come together in the way that you think about whatever it is they were disunified about. And this means, of course, to have agreement, to agree with each other. The language here in chapter 4, verse 2 in the original Greek is exactly the same as in chapter 2, verse 2 where Paul wrote, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. So Paul has already talked about the importance of being like-minded to the church in general. Now he's going to say to these two women, and you too need to be like-minded. He's not joking around. He's not kidding. He's not, he's not, uh, you know, he's not just using pious platitudes. Okay? He wants this problem solved in a biblical way. Now because Paul did not address a specific sin or doctrinal issue, it seems like he must have been confronting a personality conflict. Again, Paul 
often would specify sins. In Corinthians, he didn't name the person, but he said, a man has his father's wife. So he, he named the sin this man was guilty of. But he doesn't do that with these two women, even though he names them by name. Paul will also name false teachers, and he will say what kind of heresy they are guilty of. But even though he names these two women, he doesn't say exactly what sin or doctrinal issue it is that they're having conflict over. And so the problem is probably that it's more of a personality conflict than anything. If it were a theological problem, Paul could weigh in one side or the other and say, Syntyche is right and Euodia is wrong. Or if it were a sin issue, he could say, this person needs to stop sinning against this person. But he doesn't say that. He also didn't command them like, to stop gossiping about each other. And I think he would do that if, if that were the issue, because gossiping is a sin. According to many verses in Proverbs, it's a sin, according, such as Proverbs 11.13, Proverbs 16.28, Proverbs 18.8, Proverbs 20.19, Proverbs 26.20, and Proverbs 26.22. Over and over again, the Bible names gossip as a serious problem. And so if that's what they were doing, I think Paul would have said so. Also, Paul included gossip in a list of other sins in Romans 1.29 and 2 Corinthians 12.20. And so if Paul were, if, if these women, I should say, were involved in a specific, identifiable sin, whether gossip or some other sin, I think Paul would have called them out for that. He would call them to repentance specifically on the sin that they were committing. And I also think, based on First and Second Corinthians, that Paul would have called on the church in Philippi to begin the process of church discipline with these women if they did not respond to his rebuke. But he doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't specify a sin, and he doesn't call on the church to start the process of church discipline like he specifically did to the Corinthian church. Instead, he just tells them to agree, but he doesn't just tell them. He pleads with them to agree with one another, to be like-minded. In other words, I think we're talking about two people who just didn't like each other. They just didn't get along. It was a personality thing. They got on each other's nerves. You don't know any Christians like that, do you? There's nobody in this church, I'm sure, who just gets on your nerves, who you just don't like, who personality-wise is just isn't a fit. Rather, it's a grind to be around them. You have anybody like that in your family? Someone who also is in the Lord, just as you are, but not someone you like to spend a great deal of time around because you find yourself feeling tense and feeling, you know, feeling your blood pressure elevates and you feel agitated to be around them. You don't know anybody like this, do you? Someone you just don't like them? They get on your nerves, there's tension every time you're around them? Of course, we've all experienced this at some point in our life, probably. It's hard to like everybody. We all have certain quirks of personality that maybe repel other people from us and certainly cause us to be repelled from other people. So how do you resolve a situation like this? What do you do when... Someone is in your orbit that you actually don't really like all that much. Someone that you wouldn't prefer to be around. How do you resolve this? Well, one way to resolve it is simply to avoid the other person. I think that's probably the typical way that we do this. We just avoid them, right? We just make sure that we 
notice where they are and try not to be there. Or to be around him or her as little as possible or not to interact with that person when you have to be around them. That's one way we try to resolve it, resolve it is through just pure avoidance. Another way to resolve a situation like this, especially in the church, is just to stop worshiping with them. I mean, if this was a house church, and we're talking about a dozen people, 20 people, 30 people, 50 people maybe at the most, then you can't just sit on the other side of the auditorium because there is no auditorium. You're worshiping in somebody's living room. And everybody's supposed to greet everybody with a holy kiss as we read from other passages of Scripture. It's hard to avoid somebody in a smaller group of people. And so what is the tendency? Well, you might try to just not be around that person. You might try to sit on the other side of the living room from them or whatever. But if the tension continues and the problems persist, a lot of times the tendency is to, well, I, I'm not going to worship anymore with those people. I, I just, it's just too uncomfortable for me to go there and to be around God's people. In our context, we have other churches we can go to, but they didn't have that in Philippi. There was one church in Philippi. That's it, okay? Either you could be the first church split in church history, or you could just stop worshiping with God's people. That's kind of what the options were. In our context, you can go to another church, you can find another church, or you can start your own church. And all of these things have been tried. The question isn't what do people do in situations like this. You know what we do because we've all encountered this in some way or other in our lives. The question is, what does God want us to do in these situations? How would the Lord like us to resolve tensions and conflicts we have with other children of His, other believers, our brothers and sisters, Paul calls them in uh, verse 1. How do we resolve this in a way that is pleasing to God? The way Christ himself would resolve it if he didn't like somebody, perhaps. Well, Paul's answer to that is given to us in verse 2c, which says, In the Lord. That's, that's the issue. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. That's Paul's answer to this conflict. It's not to tell them to just be nice. It's not to take one side or the other. It's to tell them to change their minds and to tune them up with the Lord himself. The basis of Paul's plea to these two women is their mutual relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, Paul has layered this letter with these instructions, with these words. Back in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul said that his ambition in life was to be found in him, that is in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that is through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That right there, in a nutshell, is what it means to be in the Lord. It means to have his righteousness credited to us as a gift based on faith. That's what justification by faith means. It's what the core of becoming a Christian is about from God's side of the picture. Both of these women are in the Lord, and we're going to see that quite clearly as we progress through the rest of this paragraph. Paul has no doubts that both of these women belong to Jesus Christ. 
So both of them have this relationship. Both of them have been found in him, not having a righteousness of their own, which is, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that is, comes on the basis of faith. Both of them have this. And so because they are both in the Lord, because they are both in Jesus Christ, that, Paul says, should cause them to think the same way. That should be the basis of their like-mindedness the basis of their unity, the way to resolve these personality conflicts between them. To cause them to think the same way, to agree that their personal distaste for each other was wrong, ungodly, unchristian. Paul has also laid out some more detail about what this kind of agreement meant back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He said, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Have the same mind as Christ Jesus had, and so on. And also in chapter 2, Paul called on all the believers to be like Christ, who sacrificed himself for us. And so Paul's answer to their conflict is not just to avoid each other or try to be nice. It's to find common agreement in the Lord, in their common shared relationship with Jesus Christ. Now back to the question, how do you resolve tensions with someone? that you don't personally like? The answer is to find agreement in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I liken this to, and I'm not the only one, to um, all instruments that are tuned to the same pitch. If you've ever played a musical instrument, you know this. If you haven't played one, let me tell you, they go out of tune, okay? Instruments go out of tune on their own. And if you pick up your instrument out of the case, in my case, I played the trumpet more than anything else. And um, the trumpet, when it's cold, has a different tune than when it's warmed up. I mean, actually, the, 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 the metal, the, 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 um, the uh, temperature of it makes a difference into how the instrument is tuned. If you pick it up out of the case cold, and it was tuned the last time, and you start playing it, it might sound fine. Okay, and still you, until you start trying to play with another instrumentalist, and it doesn't matter what that instrumentalist is playing. They could be playing another trumpet. They could be playing another brass instrument. They could be playing strings. They could be playing the piano. It doesn't matter. Once you start playing with somebody else, what you probably will notice is that you're not in tune with each other. And you can fight about that. You can say, you need to tune your instrument because mine's in tune. I tuned it last week. Or they could say the same thing to you. That's not typically how these out-of-tune instruments are resolved in a band or an orchestra. Instead, what's, what happens in the band or orchestra is somebody plays a note, the piano, which is the hardest one to tune. You've got to bring somebody in, and they spend a long time doing it. And so if there's a piano involved, all the instruments will typically tune to the piano. The oboe is hard to tune, perpetually flat, I think. And so sometimes if there's an oboe involved, people will tune to that. 
okay? And the point isn't find the most disagreeable thing and tune yourself to that. It's not the point at all. That's, I guess, how it happens with the two examples I gave you. But the point is everybody's tuning to one thing, okay? The piano may be the one thing they're tuning to or the oboe or whatever, but the best is to find a pure pitch, right? An electronically produced pitch. And everybody tunes to that. And when every instrument is tuned to the same pitch, regardless of where that pitch came from, they're going to play in tune. They're going to sound better together. Now, when somebody tells you you're out of tune, you know, I guess maybe some people take that personally, but you really shouldn't. I mean, instruments go out of tune. It's not, it's not a, an assault against your character to say your trumpet is out of tune. And so we're used to, if we play instruments, used to being told or realizing we're out of tune and tuning the instrument. No problem. But when it's a personality conflict and someone comes along and says, you're out of tune with Jesus Christ, that's offensive, right? That's hard to take. It's hard to be told. The problem you're having with other people is you. You need to get tuned up to Jesus Christ. But that's essentially what Paul is saying to the, here to these two women. The problem is not that they can't agree with each other. The problem is they're not in agreement with the Lord. And so Paul's call to unity to this church, and specifically to these two women, is to look at their spiritual lives and to think about how their daily walk is either an expression of, of genuine faith in Jesus Christ or a digression from genuinely following Jesus Christ. And how often do we really realize that some of the mundane problems that we deal with, personal crabbiness toward our family or coworkers, might just not might be not that we haven't had coffee yet or that we didn't sleep well at night, but rather that something is amiss in our spiritual lives, that something's out of tune in our walk with Jesus Christ. How often do we think that the personality conflicts in the church might not just be because that person's a disagreeable person, but rather that there's something out of tune in our relationship with the Lord. Hallelujah. So instead of assigning blame, which is kind of our tendency, as in, she was rude to me, that Euodia, she was rude to me, and so she started this whole thing. Both the people in their struggle needed to get in tune with Jesus Christ. That's Paul's urging to them. And one question that helps in all kinds of situations like this is, what would the Lord want me to do in this situation? I find myself saying that to people when they come to me with problems they can't seem to resolve, is I'll say, well, what, what happened? You know, what's your position on this? What do you think they would say? And then I, if, you know, if, if I'm thinking well and, and the grace of God is working in my life, I'll say to them, because this is a killer question, so I, I encourage you to use it because it's really hard to not take it. It's hard to take it as a personal assault when someone says to you, well, what would the Lord want me to do in this situation? You're not telling them anything. You're asking them a question. And it's a question that is a sobering one. It's a question that, in many situations, in my experience, shakes people out of their self selfishness and self-centeredness. And gets them to think about what it would be like to tune to the pitch that Jesus Christ 
has laid down for us. Or to put it another way, what would the Lord want me, uh, would the Lord want me to continue to despise this other person who belongs to him and to my church? That's a lot harder of a question to say yes to than who's at fault. Are they at fault? Yes, they're at fault. Okay, that's easy to say yes to, right? Because it appeals to our own personal pride. It's harder to say yes. Would the Lord want me to continue to despise this other person who belongs to him and my church? And so in Paul's plea here, plea here in, in chapter 4, verse 2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of, one, to be of the same mind in the Lord. He is finally coming, really, it seems, to the, to the most specific point of the letter. The letter has many points to it. It has many things that we learn about. It's got some great theology and a lot of really practical wisdom to it. But all of that, it seems, was like a snowball that Paul was accumulating in order to drop on these two people. I don't mean this as violently as it sounds, but in other words, Paul has been rolling this up, all right, in order to come to maximum impact when he says to these women, you need to agree with each other in the Lord. And we would do well to take the same, uh, to take the same instruction for ourselves. Are the problems I have with other people genuine problems about genuine things where there's a clear right and wrong and Resolution needs to happen in terms of right and wrong. Or, as is often the case, are they really just personality conflicts? When we tune to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we make Him the basis of our unity as a church, as the people of God, when we choose, because of our walk with Jesus Christ, to be of the same mind with other people, We're putting everything that is true about us, all that we are in Jesus Christ, all that he has given to us by grace and all that he calls us to be in our Christian life. We're doing all all of that. We are putting into practice in the most practical way possible. And this is a better brand of happiness. Not a happiness that wins the argument. Not a happiness that expels the difficult people so that I'm only around the people I like. It's a kind of happiness that works through problems in light of God, in light of the Lord, in light of who He is and what He's called us to do. This is a better brand of happiness. 